And so what is it that drives you? Is there a desire inwardly to advance the kingdom of God or just your own simple agenda? It's an issue of what preoccupies us, what we daydream about, what our ambitions are in this life. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, a daily walk through the Bible with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in chapter 8 of our study of the book of Romans. At the beginning of this chapter, the Apostle Paul emphasizes the hope sinners have in a relationship with Christ. This follows his discourse in chapter 7, in which Paul talked about the struggle even he experienced between his fleshly sin nature and his new spirit. Today, Pastor Brogy looks at how Paul directs his readers in avoiding the temptation of the fleshly nature. Let's join him as he begins reading from chapter 8. I told you last time that someday I hope to preach a series of messages on great chapters in the Bible. And of course, all the chapters are equally inspired. All the chapters are equally important. Chapter 23 of the Psalms speaks of God's care. Isaiah 40 speaks of God's great power, of His greatness. John 3 of Christ's death. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 of God's love. Romans chapter 8 that we're in this morning speak of God's commitment to us. Romans 8 is a life-changing chapter if you can understand it. It's well been said that indeed if the Bible were a ring and the book of Romans were the setting, then the 8th chapter is the diamond on that ring. There are powerful, powerful truths, life-changing truths, that if the child of God can get a hold of them, they will change you forever. Now, I want to forewarn you, the text that we're looking at this morning is a very difficult and very challenging text. It's not the milk of the Word, it's the meat of the Word. And so with Peter, I would say, gird up your minds for action. Don't wander. Focus. Ask the Holy Spirit to teach you this morning. Because if you can get a handle on this paragraph of Scripture that we're going to examine, it will open up the entire 8th chapter to you. Romans chapter 8, we want to begin reading in verse 5 where we left off last time. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. Now, when God looks at this world, He sees only two kinds of people. Those who've been born once and those who've been born twice. Those who are saved and those who are lost. Those who are saints and those who are ain'ts. 
Now, the world will often divide man in so many different ways. Educated, uneducated, cultured, uncultured, sophisticated, non-sophisticated, religious or irreligious. But the Bible only sees two major differences. It acknowledges the other differences and very often the indifferences and the injustices that come from that. But God underscores throughout the Word of God that He doesn't see the way man sees. When Samuel the prophet was asked of God to go to Jesse's home, it was a fulfillment of prophecy that Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah and from the family of David to anoint a king. When he saw Eliab, David's brother, he thought for sure, this is the Lord's anointed. But God said to him, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. We may look at someone like an Albert Einstein and compare him to a total ignoramus and we perceive a vast difference. Or we might compare the knowledge of that same ignoramus to the knowledge of God and see an infinite difference. But the same infinite difference exists between God and Einstein. See, God does not see the way we see. The only difference God sees is, are those who have life, those who are saved, and those who are not between those who have had a fleshly birth only and those who have had a spiritual birth, between, again, those who have been born once and those who have been born twice. And the Bible teaches if you die having only been born once, then you will die twice. You will die first physically and then eternally, what the Bible calls the second death, in an awful place called the lake of fire that God does not wish any to go to. Hell is a very real place. Now, that sounds old-fashioned today, and people don't want to hear about a lake of fire, but nonetheless, it is true. And that's the problem with this age. We are, I believe, in the last of the last days, and as we studied earlier in the book of Romans, one of the characteristic marks of the last days is there'll be no fear of God before their eyes. But the good news is that God has made a provision through His Son. So here we are in the doctrinal section of Romans, and we've been studying three great doctrines. The doctrine of condemnation, that we justly deserve the wrath of God, whoever we are, wherever we are. The doctrine of justification, how a righteous God can put man right with himself. And then the doctrine of sanctification in chapters 6 through 8, that process by which God conforms us into his image. Now, if you study Hebrews, the 10th chapter, you will see that each member of the Godhead is involved in our salvation. And so we baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father authorized salvation. The Son acquired it, and the Spirit applies it. God the Father said, here is how salvation will be accomplished. God the Son said, I will accomplish it. I will die. And God the Holy Spirit says, I will make it real. I will take their hard, unbelieving blind hearts and help them to see. And so when we come here to this section of Scripture, we see some of the marks of someone who has been born again. This is a chapter that focuses, among other things, on God the Holy Spirit. He's only been mentioned twice up until the eighth chapter, and just very briefly, once in the fifth chapter and once in the seventh chapter. But he's mentioned 19 times here in the course of 27 verses. And he describes for us five birthmarks of the child of God. Let's review them quickly, some that we've already explored. First, we saw in the opening verse, there is no condemnation. There is no condemnation. It opens, there is now, therefore now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
That's a marvelous, liberating truth for every Christian. There is no condemnation right now if you are in Christ Jesus. We were in Adam before we were saved. We are identified with Adam, with his sin, because in the loins of Adam, as Romans 5 and verse 12 teaches, the whole human race existed such that when Adam sinned, I sinned. And that's why we are born into sin. There's an inclination towards sin. But verse 1, understand, says there's no condemnation if you're identified in Christ. It does not say there are no mistakes, no failures, or no sins if you are a believer because believers make mistakes. They do sin. There are failures. Abraham lied about his wife. King David committed adultery. Ananias and Sapphira tried to take glory for themselves. Peter tried to kill a man with a sword. And on another occasion, he was guilty of hypocrisy. And so while we may suffer the consequences for our sin, nonetheless, there is no condemnation if you are in Christ Jesus. That's the first birthmark that we studied. Secondly, there's a wonderful liberation beginning now in verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Again, a special privilege only given to those who are in Christ Jesus. He's underscoring that. And by the way, did you notice the reversal of the words? It's not now Jesus Christ, but Christ Jesus. And that should be a good reminder to us because many unsaved people think that Jesus' last name was Christ, but that's not his name. That's his title. He is Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Anointed One. And here in verse 2, Paul reminds us of two laws that are operating all the time. There's the law of sin and death, and there's the law of the life in the Spirit. Now, you will notice there that the word law is not in capital letters, but in a small letter. And I told you last time that in our ancient manuscripts, they're either in all uppercase letters or all lowercase letters. They're not like our English Latin letters where we capitalize some words in small letters. They're, they're all one or the other. And so the interpreter has to discern what is he speaking of? And so, rightly so, in every translation, it's a small l because he's speaking here of a principle that governs our life. Just as there are certain uh, spiritual laws that govern the spiritual universe, even so there are certain uh, physical laws that govern the uh, physical universe. And so he's describing here a principle in the spiritual realm. Now, we studied very carefully last time the law of sin and death. And it is very simple that man is born with an inclination to sin because he sinned in and with Adam. And so in his constitution is the doctrine of condemnation. He stands condemned. He stands guilty. He's born aging, heading towards the grave and towards an eternity without God apart from sovereign intervention. And so the psalmist can write, indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Now, that sin nature obviously is not eradicated when I am saved. And so we studied in the seventh chapter the struggle that the believer can have. Paul says in Romans 7, For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want to do. The good that I wish I cannot do, I do the very evil I don't wish to do. But there's a second law that can liberate us. In addition to the law of sin and death, notice here in verse 2, he speaks of the law of the spirit of life. And we saw that this refers to the indwelling presence of God, the Holy Spirit, who can subdue the law of sin and death. And I tried to illustrate that for you last time with the law of gravity and the law of aerodynamics. 
The law of aerodynamics is that aircraft moves down the line, takes over, and supersedes the law of gravity. The law of gravity is still there. It is still very real. It is still very much operating. But the law of aerodynamics supersedes that other law. Well, Paul's argument is that that law of sin and death that has an inclination to pull us down and into sin can be superseded by God the Holy Spirit's ministry in our life. So verse 3 tells us, notice, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh. Now you will notice it is now capital L. And rightly so, and in every translation, because he's not speaking here of a principle, he's speaking of the law, namely the Mosaic law. What is it that the Mosaic law could not do for us? Namely, it could not save us. It could not free us from the law of sin and death. And that's been one of his arguments in this book, because to this day, as many Jews in the first century thought, Most people in this century think that if you just obey the law of God, that somehow you can be made right, and in the end, you can be in a good situation with the Lord. And God says, no. His argument in Romans is that the law is not to justify you. It is given to reveal you. It is given to show what a wicked sinner we are. You stand next to a 10-foot pole. It doesn't make you 10 feet. It shows that you're less than 10 feet. And so the law of God shows our need for a Savior. So what the law could not do, notice, weak as it was through the flesh. What is he underscoring? He's saying the law is not the problem. We are the problem. The law, he's argued in the seventh chapter, is indestructible. Paul has uh, said that, and Jesus said that the law could not be broken. The weakness is not in the law, but in our flesh and that gravitational pull that wants to do what is wrong. But what the law could not do, God did. How did He do it? By sending His own Son, notice, in the likeness of sinful flesh, as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. Notice He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. It doesn't say He came in sinful flesh, for the virgin-conceived Son of God was sinless. He was tested in all ways as we are, yet without sin. Nor does it say that He came in the likeness of flesh, because the flesh of the Lord Jesus was real, unlike an early heresy in the church, docetism that denied His humanity. Jesus was not only fully God, but fully human. No, He came in the likeness of sinful flesh because the flesh of the Lord Jesus was real and sinless at the same time. And He came, notice, as an offering for sin, and He, the Father, condemned sin in the flesh. God condemned our just penalty in a substitute, His Son. So number one, we saw there is no condemnation. Number two, Because Jesus died, He can liberate us. There's a wonderful liberation. Number three, the third birthmark we looked at was there's an exciting new obligation. Why did God do all of this? Verse four tells me. So that, here's the reason, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Why did God send His Son? Not simply that we might be justified, but also that we might be sanctified. Verse 4 tells us that God sent His Son that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled. Notice, not by us, but in us. The only way that you and I can possibly fulfill the moral dictates of God's law 
is to depend upon God, the Holy Spirit. The only way for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus to win over the law of sin and death is for us to depend upon the Holy Spirit. Paul will say it this way in Galatians, I say to you, walk by the Spirit that you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. The same truth is being underscored here. He is saying, if you want to live victoriously, then don't walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And how do you walk? You walk one step at a time. When you save, there's an initial crisis point in your life. You come face to face with your sin. You see that you are guilty and worthy of condemnation. But you also come face to face with the gospel that there is one who bore that condemnation for you. And in a moment's time, when you call upon Christ in faith, God eternally saves you. But that crisis, the Bible teaches, is followed by a process. After I am saved by the Lord, I am to walk with the Lord one step at a time. Do you know what very simply a victorious Christian life is? It's not making one crisis decision after I'm saved that some people teach and all of a sudden you're going to be catapulted in, into, the, into a sinless, almost perfected-like state. No, 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 no. It is a process. It is a walk. It is a moment-by-moment kind of life. How do you live a holy life for Jesus Christ? Well, it's very simple, by living a holy day. And there's 365 days in a year. How do you live a holy day for the Lord? Well, very simple, you live a holy hour, and there's 24 hours in every day. And how do you live a holy hour for the Lord? By living a holy minute, and there's 60 in every hour. Moment-by-moment, step-by-step, we depend upon the Lord. Remember the Israelites out there in the wilderness as they wandered for 40 years because of their disobedience? And God provided manna for them. And if you remember, the manna he provided was good for one day. And if they collected more than a day's worth, it would stink and it would turn into worms. The exception, of course, was on Friday because God didn't want them to work on the Sabbath. They collected for two days and the bread was supernaturally preserved for, for two days. It's a picture in many ways of the Christian life, that we live one day at a time, moment by moment. Now, I want to tell you this week, the law of sin and death will try to take you down by its gravitational pull. Many of you this week, if not all of us, will have some kind of solicitation either from the devil himself or possibly from another person uh, or maybe from the world system around us that the devil is energizing or very often, as James 1 teaches, just from our fallen sinful nature from within. You may have the opportunity this week to be immoral. You may have the opportunity this week to be deceptive. You may have the opportunity this week to be impatient. And so you will have to decide whether you will live by the law of sin and death or whether or not you allow the law of the life of the Spirit in Christ Jesus to supersede that law. Then there's a fourth birthmark, and this is new ground that we want to begin to look at today. Number four, I want you to notice beyond the fact that there's no condemnation and a wonderful liberation and an exciting new obligation, there's a glorious inhabitation, a glorious inhabitation. Now here in verses 5 through 13, he is going to give us the reason we can fulfill the law as we walk according to the Spirit. And the reason is very simple. God, the Holy Spirit lives in us. Look at verse 5 and see if you can follow Paul's argument. Again, this is meat, not milk, so pay close attention. He said, for those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, 
the things of the Spirit. Now, let's define a few terms here. First, the flesh. Now, if you were with us in our study of Romans 7, we saw there are five principal usages of the term socks or flesh in the New Testament. Here, he's not referring to your outward appearance. He's not referring to your fleshly lineage, your human ancestry. He's not talking about the skin that covers your skeleton. He's talking about the fallen sinful nature within, that inclination within that wants to do what is evil. But secondly, what does he mean by setting your mind on the things of the flesh? Very simply, to set your mind on the things of the flesh is to have a perspective that is worldly. It's to have a perspective that is this life only. And again, this is one of five usages of the term flesh in the New Testament. Now, very often when we think of fleshly things, we think of things like homosexuality or premarital sex or extramarital sex or getting drunk or gambling or pornography or all kinds of things. But understand, in the New Testament, it's much broader than that. A fleshly-minded person could easily and equally be pursuing the things of the flesh in his own hunting club, in his backyard garden, some hobby that you're committed to, or even some community service project. You say, I don't see that, Pastor. I'm going to show you here in a moment. You see, when we think of the things of the flesh, we need to think biblically because to set your mind on the things of the flesh versus the things of the Spirit is not necessarily describing some evil, wicked activities. But God will broaden the category to describe people who are setting their aspirations on things that are not worthy of them. You could have a well-dressed businessman in a $2,000 suit who pursues his worldly business, and the only thing he's interested in is the almighty dollar. He can be just as worldly as a teenager who's into his heavy metal rock music. Or you could have a finely dressed, dignified lady sipping her tea in her garden club, and she can be just as worldly as a prostitute. To set your mind on the things of the flesh is to set your mind on things that are this life only, things that concern only this life. Now, the Greek word phreneo, setting your mind, translated here, refers to a person's disposition. It refers to a person's bent. It refers to what it is that drives a person, what it is that gets him up. What are your ambitions in life? Are you a member of some club, some community service, some fraternity, just as an end in itself? Or as a means to an end, you go to that club because you see yourself as an ambassador for Christ and you see an opportunity to reach those people who have never met Christ and for them to find Him. And so what is it that drives you? Is there a desire inwardly to advance the kingdom of God or just your own simple agenda? It's an issue of what preoccupies us what we daydream about, what our ambitions are in this life. Let me illustrate it. Uh, turn, if you will, to the book of Philippians. You're in Romans. Go past First and Second Corinthians, and you come to four little short books, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. They're easy to remember. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Go everywhere preaching Christ, all right? Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. 
Philippians describes and broadens this definition of the things of the flesh. Now, if you know Philippians, it's all about Christ. Chapter 1 is on exalting Christ. Chapter 2 on imitating Christ. Chapter 3 on knowing Christ. And chapter 4 on rejoicing in Christ. Here in the third chapter, the focus is on knowing Christ. And Paul has just described his ambition. And then in verse 17, he uh, describes the ambitions of other people who are unlike him. And so he says in Philippians 3.17, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Now he's describing here of a walk. And he's saying, listen, you need to walk the way I walk and other believers walk who have as their ambition Jesus Christ. And then see the very first word of the next verse. It's the word for, a little three-letter word. He's giving here the reason. You could translate it because. Because, he says, many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you, even weeping, they're enemies of the cross of Christ. And so what is he doing here? He is contrasting the kind of walk that we should follow, Paul and others who followed Christ, with that of an unbeliever. And he is using here a term walk, which is what we call an idiom or a Hebraism. He's not talking about a literal physical walk, of course. He's speaking here of a spiritual walk. And we use it that way if you think about it. Very often in English we say, well, he's really walking with the Lord or she's really not walking with God today. Well, he describes these who walk who are enemies of the cross of Christ. Uh, The NIV renders the term, they live as enemies of the cross of Christ. And he says here in verse 18, for many walk of whom I have often told you and even tell you now weeping. He said, of whom I often told you. This is not the first time they heard it. Paul told them many times when he was there in Philippi. And a preacher, a good pastor will repeat himself for several reasons. One, most people don't get it the first time. And two, if it's a healthy church, there'll always be an influx of new believers. And those new believers are hearing things for the very first time, though you may have heard them your whole life. And three, you need to hear it over and over again so that you can explain it. It's one thing to know a doctrine. It's quite another thing to be able to explain that doctrine. So Paul said, I told you over and over and over again, even weeping of those who are enemies of the cross. And really, if a church is healthy, the devil will attack it. He will attack it with false teachers. He will attack it with false doctrine. He will attack it with errant brethren. He will attack it with novices. The Bible teaches all of those. And so Paul warned this this church whom he planted, whom he pastored of false teachers, of false leaders, of false doctrine, of novices who are in the ministry who shouldn't be in the ministry because God has not yet called them to the ministry. And what is he saying? He's saying, you need to guard yourself when you listen to what I tell you. What did he tell? What did he give them? He gave them the word of God. Jesus said people err because they do not know the scriptures. And so God wants us to be protected. And the way we are protected is by knowing the Bible. And if you don't know your scripture, then you will be open for all kinds of potential spiritual disaster. God's Word is a lamp at our feet and a light to our path. Through it, we are able to discern truth from error. To listen again to today's message entitled, The Blessings of the Spirit in its Entirety, why not download the Search the Scriptures app? You can find it at the iTunes Store for Apple products 
or the Google Play Store for Android devices. Simply look for Search the Scriptures with Carl Brogy. You can also listen online at our website, searchthescriptures.org. And if you have any questions or would like a CD or DVD copy, call us at 877-787-7478. Maybe you have questions you'd like to ask Pastor Brogy personally. You can do that on Tuesdays between 11 and noon Eastern Time during his live call-in program, The Bible Line. Listen to The Bible Line on the Light 88.7 FM or online at wagp.net. Next time on Search the Scriptures, we'll continue our study of the blessings of the Spirit from Romans chapter 8. Join us then as we search the Scriptures. <music> 